The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of the Miami, Florida area. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Growing up in Michigan, Kelly Van Lahr had a deep passion for sports, the outdoors, and animals. She was the kind of girl that took in every stray she met and was just genuinely a loving and generous person. In 2001, when Kelly was in her early 20s, she moved to Miami, Florida and got a job working as a waitress at a local bar. During her downtime, she'd challenge her regulars to games of pool, which is how she crossed paths with Jake Branham in 2003. He was cute with long, wispy hair and sun-kissed skin. According to the Riverfront Times, at that time, Jake was working on getting his captain's license so he could pursue his dream of owning a fishing boat charter service. The first love of Jake's life was sailing the Caribbean and fishing. Jake was into Kelly just as much as she was into him, and their relationship took off. By late 2003, Kelly actually moved in with Jake, and in early 2004, Kelly found out that she was pregnant. They welcomed their first child, a daughter, that November, and the two could not have been happier. Jake had more motivation than ever to make his dream a reality, and in 2006, it finally happened. With a $220,000 investment from his grandfather, Jake was able to buy and refurbish a 47-foot yacht. 2006 was a huge year for the couple because not only had Jake finally gotten that boat, Kelly was pregnant again. The two figured what better time than the present, so they got married that October, and by May of the next year, their family was complete. They already had a daughter, and now they had a son, too. Around that same time his son was born, everything Jake had worked towards his entire life had finally become a reality. Jake, along with his uncle Jeff and cousin Jonathan, officially launched their charter fishing boat company. Their inaugural vessel, huge shout out to grandpa, was delightfully named the Joe Cool and life was just really, really, really good. Naturally, Jake was the captain of the Joe Cool and hired two men, Scott Gamble and Samuel Carey, as his key team members. Scott was Jake's half-brother on his mom's side, who shared Jake's passion for the ocean and big-game fishing. Scott served as the boat's mechanic. 
Samuel was one of Jake's good friends, and his role was first mate. I was pretty sure I knew what that meant, but I googled it anyway, and just for anybody else who doesn't know, first mate is essentially second in command on a ship. On September 21st, 2007, the charter company booked its first ever trip to the Bahamas. That day, two men had showed up at the Miami Beach Marina and approached Samuel. According to the FBI, the two men asked if they could charter Joe Cool for a one-way trip to a yacht located off the island of Bimini. Now, Bimini's in the Bahamas, and the trip was about 50 miles directly east of Miami. Samuel obviously said yes and gave the two men the company's phone number to book the charter. The men called and booked later that day with plans to leave the following day. Jake, Samuel, and Scott decided to turn that charter into a weekend getaway because who wouldn't? They dropped their two passengers off in the Bahamas, then stay on the boat for the night so they could fish for some yellowfin tuna. They'd head back to Miami the next day around noon. Kelly didn't usually go on trips with Jake, but this quick weekend trip was too good to pass up, so she decided to tag along. Jake's grandfather happily offered to watch the kids so she could go. At around 3.15 p.m. on Saturday, September 22nd, the two men showed up at the marina carrying six bags. All of the charter company employees were there, Jake, Kelly, Samuel, and Scott. Jeff and Jonathan were also there, but they wouldn't be going on the trip. They were just there to collect money, help the passengers with their bags, that kind of thing. One of the passengers pulled out a wad of cash and paid Jeff $4,000 for the charter. Jeff later told Newsweek that it wasn't suspicious because Miami Beach is a rich man's playground. It wasn't unusual for someone to pay for a big-ticket item in cash, and the men had an explanation. The paying man told Jeff that he and his friend worked for a survey company and they just finished their job early. They planned to celebrate by meeting up with their girlfriends on a yacht in Bimini. Jeff asked why the men hadn't just flown to the Bahamas, since it would have been cheaper, maybe $150 max, but the paying man said that he actually couldn't fly because his girlfriend had packed away his passport. He was actually getting his passport back from his girlfriend on the yacht. No one questioned anything because they didn't really have a reason to. At around 4.30 p.m., Joe Cool left the Miami Beach Marina with a crew of six. Jake as captain, Scott as the mechanic, Samuel as first mate, Kelly as a passenger, and two other male clients. CNN reported that the boat was scheduled to return to the Miami Beach Marina by noon the following day so the crew could prepare for its next charter, but noon came and went and there was no Joe Cool. Jeff was caught off guard and a little bit worried, but he didn't sound the alarm immediately. He figured maybe they were just having too much fun fishing and were running late. As late afternoon approached, though, and the boat still hadn't come back yet, Jeff tried to contact Jake, but there was no response. And of all things, that's what worried Jeff the most. Jake always responded, and the ocean is no joke. So by 4 p.m., Jeff couldn't wait any longer and decided to call the Coast Guard in for help. Utilizing the boat's GPS data, the Coast Guard learned that the Joe Cool had departed from Miami, headed east towards Bimini, but never reached its destination. 78 miles into the journey around the halfway point, the boat abruptly stopped in the Florida Straits for 1 minute and 18 seconds, then took off again. But this wasn't some run-of-the-mill pause because something had happened on that boat. 
Once it started running again, it changed course. The Joe Cool wasn't headed towards Bimini anymore, it was heading towards Cuba. The boat continued on for a while, but stopped again near Dog Rocks in the Virgin Islands. Once it stopped there, it never started back up again, it just drifted. Hey guys, I don't know what it is about me, but every single time I go to the airport, TSA always pulls me aside and goes through every single item in my bag. I have a huge fear of airlines losing my luggage, so I always pack enough for a couple of days in my carry-on, which means these TSA folks are pulling out insane amounts of stuff. I always use my Weekender bag from base, and that thing has me looking like Mary Poppins every single time. I'm talking my laptop and charging necessities, a couple pairs of shoes, at least three days worth of clothes, all my makeup, and a solid amount of hair and skincare products, and of course, whatever stuffed animal my daughter has insisted I need to bring with me. It definitely looks like some kind of wizardry bag, but I assure you it is just my base. Base was created by actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. Base has thought of everything you could ever want in a piece of luggage, 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, built-in weight indicator, washable bags for your dirty clothes, thank you for that, and all the interior pockets you could ever need to help keep you organized, and let's be honest, us ladies do love our pockets. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips, the Weekender bag, my personal favorite, is super functional and even has a place to store your shoes separately, which is absolutely my favorite feature. Every piece is made to look better with miles, so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead, and Base has over 30,000 five-star reviews, which comes as absolutely no shock to me at all. Whether you're packing for a quick trip or looking to breeze through the security line or impress TSA and onlookers with how much you're able to fit in your carry-on, like me, Base has your personal items covered. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash bigmad. Go to basetravel.com slash bigmad for 50% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash bigmad. According to CNN, the Coast Guard rushed to that area of the ocean and quickly found the boat still drifting about 50 miles off the coast of Cuba. The Coast Guard boarded the boat and found it completely deserted. They could find no mechanical issues, but it was completely out of gas. Notably, though, the life raft was missing and everything was in complete disarray. There was also clear signs that a crime had been committed. They found a handcuff key on the bow, splotches of blood inside and outside the cabin, and four 9mm shell casings on the floor. But no firearms or bullets were found, and valuable items like credit cards, electronic equipment, cameras, luggage, and fishing gear worth $70,000 was still there. So clearly, whatever had happened here, it definitely was not a robbery. With all six boat passengers missing, the Coast Guard initiated a search and left the Joe Cool where it was found 
for now. Because it was obvious a crime had been committed, the Coast Guard called in the FBI's Maritime Seaport Squad, which took lead in the investigation. When you get into high seas and potential international waters, the laws and jurisdictions get hairy, and you definitely need to call in the feds. The FBI knew they needed to reach the Joe Cool because the boat was at the mercy of the elements at this point, and they needed to preserve as much evidence as they possibly could. The journey to the boat, however, was something straight out of a movie. Agents flew to the Florida Keys, then traveled by helicopter to a large Coast Guard vessel and finally took a fast boat to reach the Joe Cool. Once aboard, agents quickly gathered and preserved any piece of evidence they could find and prepared the boat to be towed back to Miami. Meanwhile, the search for the six passengers was still ongoing. Two days later, on the morning of the 24th, a Coast Guard air crew spotted two men floating on the Joe Cool's inflatable life raft. It wasn't very far from where the boat was found, and the two men were 19-year-old Guillermo Zarabazo and 35-year-old Kirby Archer. They were the ones who had chartered the boat. Kirby and Guillermo were found with luggage that contained a blowgun, darts, knives, $2,200 in cash, and a significant amount of clothing and personal items. They'd clearly been able to save things from that boat, but none of the other four crew members. These two men were now bobbing red flags. Guillermo and Kirby were taken to a large Coast Guard ship where they were separated and interviewed by FBI special agents. According to court records, Guillermo and Kirby both had similar stories. They charted Joe Cool to go to the Bahamas. On the way there, a group of three armed Cuban pirates came aboard. The pirates immediately shot and killed Jake, then shot Kelly, quote unquote, because she was hysterical. Next, the pirates ordered Scott and Samuel to throw their bodies overboard, but they refused, so the pirates shot and killed them too. Guillermo stated the pirates told him to throw the bodies overboard, so he did it. The pirates then commandeered the Joe Cool, leaving their boat behind and sailed it south until it ran out of gas. After that, a third boat picked up the pirates and they took off, leaving Guillermo and Kirby alive and with their belongings. For such violent and ruthless pirates, they were so very thoughtful when it came to Kirby and Guillermo. And if you want me to believe that you passed up the opportunity to kill homicidal pirates with a blow dart, you're high. If I'm on this jury, that's definitely gonna come up. You're already guilty, but we're not there yet, so let's keep going. While Guillermo and Kirby's stories were similar, they couldn't keep their details straight when it came to the pirates. For example, they didn't agree on how the pirates were dressed or how and where the shootings happened. They also gave conflicting reports about what happened after the victims were shot. Guillermo said Jake was still alive when he threw him overboard, while Kirby said it was Kelly who was still alive, not Jake. Maybe a couple more hours in the sea would have done their story some good. During Kirby's interview, he was asked why they were taking a boat to the Bahamas instead of flying, and Kirby explained that he chose to travel by boat because he had a warrant out for his arrest, which prevented him from flying. The man travels with blow darts, so that's not shocking. While interviewing Guillermo and Kirby, the Coast Guard started towing the Joe Cool back to Miami. Agents pointed to the charter boat and asked Guillermo if he recognized it, but he said he didn't. He actually denied ever being on the Joe Cool. 
This room temperature IQ dumbass had already forgotten that he had told agents he'd been on the boat when it was hijacked by Jack Sparrow. Investigators had actually found his ID on that boat, so why is he lying now? With only two people aboard the Joe Cool accounted for, the search for Jake, Kelly, Samuel, and Scott continued for days. According to the Sun Sentinel, the Coast Guard used aircrafts for aerial searches and boats to scour the ocean. They even conducted ground searches on several uninhibited Ks around the Bahamas, but it was absolutely treacherous. As hard as they searched and through some pretty intense weather, there was no sign of the passengers and crew anywhere. After five days of searching nearly 15,000 square miles, the Coast Guard called off their search on September 27th. A public affairs officer stated in a news release, Our thoughts and prayers are with the families and friends of the crew of the Joe Cool. Our decision to suspend the search is made in light of our confidence that if the crew of the Joe Cool was in the areas we searched, we would have found them. The public affairs officer added that further searches would be conducted if any relevant information emerged. Sadly, the bodies of Jake, Kelly, Samuel, and Scott were never found, and the FBI was certain that Kirby and Guillermo were responsible for that. Once the FBI agents were back on land, they dug deep into the duo, and it was not good. Kirby had a troubled past. According to the Sun Sentinel, in 1993, when Kirby was 22 years old, he joined the Army after getting in trouble for staying out past curfew with his very young girlfriend, a 15-year-old. He then served as a military police investigator at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, but went AWOL in 2003, which led to a discharge that wasn't honorable. Kirby eventually settled in Arkansas with his second wife and two kids, but that marriage failed harder than a football bat. Their breakup was messy, and his wife accused him of being involved with his niece and fathering her child. Kirby denied the accusation, but he was listed as the father on his niece's baby's birth certificate. Jerry Springer is rolling over in his grave. According to the Riverfront Times, after his divorce, Kirby became the focus of a child molestation investigation, and it's unclear if this investigation had anything to do with his niece baby situation. Or if it was something else, but the investigation was serious enough that Kirby was banned from seeing his two kids unsupervised. In a shocking turn of events, though, it was around that time that Kirby married his third wife. In January of 2007, Kirby got into some more trouble. He was working as an assistant manager at Walmart in Arkansas when he took cash and checks totaling over $92,000, stashed them in a microwave, bought the microwave using his employee discount, of course, and left the store without telling anyone. He then went on the run. Almost immediately, Walmart discovered the theft and called police, which prompted a felony theft investigation. Shortly after leaving Walmart, Kirby was stopped by police for a broken headlight because obviously he's lazy on top of being a huge piece of shit, but he wasn't arrested because the warrant hadn't been issued yet. He then fled to the Miami, Florida area where he met 19-year-old Guillermo Zaraboza through some mutual acquaintances. And I am trying to say his name correctly. Please forgive me if it's a little bit different each time I say it. I am really trying, I promise. 
Guillermo was born in Cuba and came to the United States with his family in 1999 through a visa lottery. They settled in Hialeah, Florida, which is part of the Miami metro area. During his school years, Guillermo excelled and participated in the junior ROTC program. According to the Associated Press, Guillermo was described as a good kid who didn't drink or use drugs and had never been in trouble with the law. He was known for being sociable, respectful, and well-behaved. After graduating, Guillermo started working for private investigation and security companies. He had a strong interest in security and hoped to work in law enforcement one day. By late summer 2007, Guillermo was good friends with Kirby. He was still living with his parents in Hialeah and working as a security guard in Miami Beach nightclubs. He'd also recently applied to become a Miami-Dade police officer, but before he could get that callback, he chartered the Joe Cool alongside Kirby, and now he was being investigated by the whole-ass FBI. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he's probably not getting the job. After further investigation into Guillermo and Kirby, the FBI theorized that their plan to sail to the Bahamas was a crock of shit. Instead, the FBI suspected the duo had plans of going to Cuba, which they believed was an ideal destination for both of them. Guillermo was born there, and Kirby could escape prosecution from the child molestation charges since Cuba has no extradition treaty with the U.S. The fact that Kirby spoke Spanish and was familiar with Cuba, as he'd previously served as a military police investigator at the U.S. base there, added weight to that theory. Based on all the evidence gathered thus far, the FBI believed Guillermo and Kirby murdered all four crew members, seized control of the boat in an attempt to sail to Cuba, but their journey was cut short when they ran out of gas. Several pieces of evidence supported that theory. First, there were no reports of pirate activity in the Caribbean at that time. Additionally, the FBI noted that those valuable items had been left untouched. Pirates love stealing and would have stolen. That's kind of their whole bit. Captain Hook didn't love treasure for nothing. Adding to the evidence that no pirates were involved, the FBI noted there were no signs of forced entry on the boat, no scratches or marks on the hull that would have suggested a pirate's boarding vessel. There were also no radio transmissions or maydays about a hijacking that came from the boat. There was a distress button on the radio and simply pressing it would have sent the Coast Guard to the boat's position, but that button hadn't been pressed. There were countless holes in Guillermo and Kirby's stories. They claimed all the killings took place on the boat's exterior deck, but evidence determined that was a lie. Blood and three of the four shell casings were found inside the main cabin. And although Guillermo and Kirby said they were going to meet up with girlfriends in Bimini, investigators never found those women. It's almost like they didn't exist. Unfortunately, though, according to Newsweek, despite all of that, investigators still didn't think they had enough evidence to charge the two with four counts of murder, at least not yet. Instead, Guillermo was charged with making false statements for denying he was even on the boat, and Kirby faced a charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution in the theft case. 
Those charges gave investigators more time to find additional evidence to prove the murder cases. The FBI ran ballistic testing on the 9mm shell casings found on the boat. They were all found to be from the same gun, which was a Glock 9mm. This was yet another hole in Guillermo and Kirby's story, who claimed the pirates shot the victims with different guns. These men had two brain cells combined, and they were both battling for third place. Furthermore, the FBI learned that Guillermo owned a Glock 9mm. Who'd have thunk? When the FBI conducted a search of Guillermo's home, they found a receipt for the purchase of a Glock 9mm magazine and four boxes of 9mm bullets similar to those found on the boat. All four spent shell casings found on that boat were traced back to the ammunition Guillermo had purchased. And while that gun was never recovered, the FBI figured it had been thrown overboard along with the victims' bodies because guns cannot walk and don't go missing on their own. Certainly, if Guillermo was missing a gun, he'd be pretty concerned about it. According to the Miami Herald, the FBI managed to locate the mutual acquaintance who had introduced Guillermo to Kirby. His name was Carlos, and he ran a chop shop in the Miami area. According to Carlos, he knew Guillermo because he frequented the shop. Carlos then met Kirby through a mutual friend, a Cuban rafter who Kirby befriended during his time working at Guantanamo Bay. When Carlos met Kirby, he didn't talk about his fugitive status. Instead, he portrayed himself as working in high security, sometimes even with the CIA. He bragged about connections with influential figures in government and the wealthy, all of which was not true. Carlos told the FBI that between March and April of 2007, he put Guillermo and Kirby in touch. He explained that because Kirby claimed to work in security, he thought he'd be a good resource for Guillermo, who was really interested in that field. He gave him Guillermo's phone number, and soon he said the two were inseparable. According to the Miami Herald, Carlos told police that Kirby started telling Guillermo about a big job they could do in Cuba. The job would make them both rich, and Guillermo told Carlos he could make approximately $1 million and he'd have enough money to retire on a yacht in Miami Beach. Tell me you have no financial literacy without telling me you have no financial literacy. In order for this big job to work, they were going to have to find a way to get to Cuba. They clearly decided they needed a boat, so the two came up with a plan. Sneak into a local marina and steal a 60 to 70 foot boat that could take the heavy seas and go fast. They'd stop in the Bahamas to refuel, then go to Cuba. Guillermo and Kirby told Carlos about their plan and asked if he wanted in, figuring they'd probably need a third man to help with all the stealing. Carlos said sure, and I don't love that for Carlos at all. The trio scouted out several marinas around the area, but they never found the perfect boat. According to Carlos, a few days before the men went to the marina and asked to charter the Joe Cool, Guillermo called Carlos and arranged for Kirby to illegally purchase a gun. Also, around that time, Kirby told Guillermo they were switching to plan B. Carlos said that after Guillermo and Kirby left on the Joe Cool, Guillermo called Carlos to let him know that they'd left and asked Carlos to pick up his car. The next morning, Carlos went to pick up the car, which had been ticketed. We love evidence. Keep going. The Associated Press reports that further into the investigation, investigators learned that Guillermo had purchased a cell phone under a fake name. 
That's the phone he used to call charter boat companies, and he also made efforts to cut ties with his friends and family prior to leaving. On October 10th, federal prosecutors finally had enough evidence to charge Guillermo and Kirby with four counts of murder. Later, they would additionally be charged with robbery, kidnapping, and several counts of maritime law violations, including seizing a ship and causing a death with a firearm. The federal government does not play, and they'll stack on wild creative charges you've never heard of because they can. These two murderous Muppets were now facing the death penalty. In May of 2008, Guillermo's attorney filed a statement with the court. In that statement, Guillermo claimed that while he and Kirby were on the boat, Kirby reached into Guillermo's bag, grabbed his gun, and shot all four victims. Then they both threw the bodies overboard. Guillermo stated he was scared and acted in self-defense. He didn't know Kirby was going to hijack the boat and try to go to Cuba. He thought they were going to Bimini for private security work, then accompanying Kirby on a CIA mission in Cuba or Venezuela. The crazy ones always pull the CIA card. According to Guillermo's defense, he passed two lie detector tests denying involvement in the murders, but we all know polygraph tests are more so a tool and not something that conclusions can be drawn from. The prosecution actually fought to exclude his results from the trial, arguing their unreliability and potential influence over jurors. In the end, the judge did rule that the polygraph tests would not be included. Come July, Soundings Online reports that it was Kirby who made a surprise confession to investigators confirming their theory of events. He explained that his original plan was to sneak into Cuba to evade prosecution for the theft and molestation charges. Kirby explained that after meeting Guillermo through a mutual acquaintance, he recruited him to assist in the plan. Guillermo was initially unaware that Kirby was a wanted fugitive, but Kirby later disclosed that information to him. Originally, they planned to steal a boat, refuel in Bimini, and then proceed to Cuba. However, they weren't able to find a suitable boat to steal in the marinas, so they decided to charter one instead. They talked about what they would do with the crew and ultimately decided they'd drop them on a deserted island. Kirby told authorities that when he and Guillermo chartered the Joe Cool, they expected only two crew members. They were surprised when all four showed up. Nevertheless, they proceeded with their plan, intending to drop them off on an island before making their way to Cuba. But, according to Kirby, things didn't go as planned. When Bimini came into view, Kirby thought Jake was acting strangely, so he grabbed their guns and told Guillermo to wait for his signal. According to Kirby, Guillermo didn't wait and instead shot Scott and Samuel in the cockpit. The cockpit is where the boat is controlled and steered for anybody who doesn't know that. Kirby then shot Kelly and Jake on the flybridge, which is a higher level of the boat, sometimes used for sunbathing or just enjoying the view. Kirby and Guillermo then disposed of the bodies and weapons in the ocean before continuing towards Cuba. Their journey was only cut short when the boat ran out of gas. While Kirby and Guillermo were in the life raft, they came up with a pirate story, which they both equally bombed. Kirby said they'd hoped the Cuban border guard would find them and take them to Cuba, but in today's episode of Fuck Around and Find Out, it was the U.S. Coast Guard who found them first. 
On July 24th, Kirby pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit violence against maritime navigation. All of his other charges were dropped and he was spared the death penalty. Kirby later received a sentence of five consecutive life terms, meaning his ghost will be incarcerated for the next five centuries. He told the court, I don't deserve to sit in jail for the rest of my life. I deserve the death penalty. No question. For the victim's family, I wish that I could take back what happened. I wish I could show more emotion. I'm not built that way. Kelly's friend gave a victim impact statement telling Kirby, you had choices and you chose murder. She showed him a picture of Kelly and Jake's three-year-old and one-year-old and said, I hope the faces of the children you hurt never leave your mind's eye for the rest of your miserable life. Jake and Scott's sister Amy said Kirby's crimes were absolutely unforgivable. She said she hopes Kirby feels the heartache he has caused her family for the rest of his life, adding, Our hell is on earth and it began with you. Hell is waiting for you. Following Kirby's guilty plea, the prosecution announced that they wouldn't be seeking the death penalty against Guillermo, so the most he was going to be getting was life in prison without parole. Jury selection for Guillermo's trial began on September 15, 2008. According to court documents, prosecutors argued that Guillermo and Kirby planned the hijacking of the boat in advance. Guillermo was a willing participant in those plans, having informed Carlos about the plan, assisted Kirby in purchasing a gun illegally, and aided in the search for a boat to steal. Additionally, he brought a gun and ammunition on board. The prosecution said Guillermo was fully aware of the plan when he boarded the boat, and he knew their intention was to hijack the boat and travel to Cuba. He was not an innocent bystander in any sense of the term. He was actively involved in the scheme. The hijacking simply had not gone according to plan, which resulted in Guillermo and Kirby shooting and killing all other members on board. Guillermo was responsible for the deaths of Scott and Michael while Kirby killed Jake and Kelly. The prosecution stated that the men disposed of the victims' bodies overboard and altered their course for Cuba. Their plan was only thwarted when the boat ran out of gas, forcing them into a life raft and waiting for rescue. When it came to the defense, they argued that Guillermo was unaware of Kirby's intentions to hijack the boat and commit murder. They said Guillermo played no role in the killings. It was Kirby who fatally shot all four crew members using Guillermo's gun. According to the Miami Herald, the defense portrayed Guillermo as a naive and impressionable young man who fell under the influence of his much older accomplice. They depicted Guillermo as someone who was easily swayed by Kirby's claims of being involved in high-level security work, including alleged connections to the CIA. Given that that was Guillermo's dream job, he believed Kirby's lies. And might I suggest Googling your dream job before you land on it? A simple tap-tap would have let him know that that dude definitely wasn't some secret squirrel. He was just a squirrel. The defense went on to characterize Kirby as a manipulative predator with Guillermo being his unwitting victim. They told the jury Guillermo was just as much a hijacking victim. <gasps> 
adding, this is a case about how a cunning and devious man was able to quickly kill four people. That man was Kirby Archer. Ugh. Wisdom chased Guillermo, but he was a runner. In a brave, terrible move, he took the stand in his own defense. He stated that he was unaware of Kirby's fugitive status and his intentions to hijack the boat and harm the crew. He believed they were embarking on a security job in Bimini since Kirby had promised to use his connections with U.S. intelligence agencies to help Guillermo land a job with the CIA. Guillermo dreamed of working in law enforcement, so he was more than willing to do anything Kirby said. Guillermo admitted to bringing his 9mm handgun on board, explaining that he believed they were undertaking security jobs in Bimini, not planning violence. Because legitimate security jobs always utilize illegal handguns? Dude would have thrived in the CIA. The last sentence was a lie. Guillermo told the jury that he was in the boat's bathroom when he heard gunfire and chaos. That directly conflicts with his original statement that Kirby took the gun out of his bag. Anywho, he went on to say that he found Kirby holding the gun Guillermo had brought on board. Kirby then forced Guillermo at gunpoint, which is brand new information, to dispose of the bodies and clean up the blood. Afterward, Kirby started driving the boat, which later ran out of gas. According to Soundings Online, Guillermo also told the jury that after they ran out of gas, he wanted to stay on the Joe Cool with his luggage, but Kirby forcibly ejected him onto the life raft along with his belongings. That would have been an intense level of accurate aim. Six things of luggage. Human being. Two boats. Waves in the ocean. But I digress. In closing arguments, the prosecution claimed that Guillermo's testimony was all made up and emphasized that the murders of all four victims were a joint effort where they acted together. It only took them a little over one minute to kill all four people, throw their bodies overboard, and take off again. The prosecution argued that it would be impossible for one single person to do all of that alone. On September 30th, after four days of deliberation, the jury found Guillermo guilty of four counts of causing death through the use of a firearm, but they were deadlocked on the other 12 charges, and those included the murder charges, which doesn't make a ton of sense. According to NBC News, the partial verdict was inconsistent. The judge raised concerns about how the jury could convict Guillermo of causing death with a firearm, but not of committing murder. The judge suggested that the jury might have mistakenly concluded Guillermo's guilt on the firearms charges solely because his gun had been used. It became readily apparent that the jury was confused by the charges and their jury instructions. After considering the matter, the judge ultimately declared a mistrial on all counts. Guillermo would face a retrial the following year. On February 9th, 2009, Guillermo's retrial for all 16 charges began. This trial closely mirrored the first, but with a focus shift. Instead of focusing on Guillermo's direct involvement in the killings, they focused on his knowledge of the hijacking plot and his potential for violence. There was one additional difference from the first trial, though, and that, my friends, was new damning evidence. Following the mistrial, a detective searched through Guillermo's computer files and found numerous emails, chat room messages, and other electronic communications. 
In those messages, Guillermo talked about how he was planning a trip to Cuba, which is not Bimini. He claimed it was for a CIA mission, and he might turn up on news reports as a missing person. He never told any friends about any kind of trip to Bimini. Additionally, the Miami Herald reports that the detective found Guillermo had searched variations of the word Cuba hundreds of times, but only searched Bimini once. Guillermo also checked with his phone provider to see if he could still make calls from Cuba, not Bimini. The prosecution argued that this evidence indicated Guillermo was clearly aware of the trip to Cuba and was complicit in the hijacking, contrary to his claim of being a poor innocent bystander who was uber-duped. Despite the prosecution's assertions, the defense maintained that Guillermo was unaware of what was going to happen on that boat. Guillermo testified in his own defense again, stating he was in the bathroom during the shooting and had no knowledge of the events unfolding. In their closing arguments, though, the prosecution urged the jury to consider a crucial question. Why would Kirby spare Guillermo's life if he wasn't involved in the hijacking? The fact that Guillermo survived suggested his complicity in the crime as none other than Kirby's partner. On February 19th, the jury found Guillermo guilty on every single charge. He was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences, plus an additional 85 years. The judge said that he believed Guillermo's testimony at trial was a total fabrication. Despite multiple appeals, Guillermo's efforts to overturn his conviction have all been unsuccessful. Today, he's serving his time in Coleman Medium FCI in Sumterville, Florida, while Kirby is enjoying his lifelong stay at the Lewisburg USP in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I think I speak for everyone when I say, may the tides be never in their favor. For photos pertaining to this case, check out the Joe Cool highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern, where you go live with me and talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. Spotify just merged with Patreon, so you should be able to access it from there. Shout out to Spotify. Anywho, a bonus episode did drop this week, so check it out. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We are officially at the end of this episode, and that means it's time for a review. I only have one more that Kyle sent me, and I haven't asked him for more, and that's on me. This one is from Moon Buddy, and it says, I just listened to this. Thank you for covering it and also advocating for the mother. Terrible. And this was the Garage Floor episode. If you haven't listened to that, it's probably one of the hardest I have ever covered. It will make you cry. It will make you question humanity. But those cases do need to be covered because people need to know the warning signs for child abuse and agencies need to be held accountable when they're not fucking doing what they should. So I appreciate you listening to that episode because I know it was hard. That was a really, really tough case to do it all. I have so much love for Haley. She helped a lot with that case. She worked really, really hard. And 
I know it wasn't easy for her either. Cases like that are tough, but it means the world to me that you guys care enough that even when it's hard, you listen because there's so much to learn and there's so much to apply later if you see something similar happening in the future with another case. So I love you, Moon Buddy. You're the best. Thanks for being nice. If you have made it to this part of the episode, that means that it's time for the hot take and what a bunch of fucking idiots. These two motherfuckers, holy shit. Fucking pirates, get out of here, you dummy. But four people, get the fuck out of here. I have a hard time believing that two dudes, one being a fucking teenager. Were they teenagers? Yeah, 19. Yep, no, bye. We're good. Nah, I don't think so. Wait, was he a little bit older at the time? How do you apply for the fucking police department when you can't even take the DUI test because you can't drink? Anywho, moving along. Fucking idiots. It's always the CIA with crazy people. It's always the CIA. Nobody's worried about the FBI. They're always worried about the CIA. Either the CIA is coming for them or they're in it. We've had so many episodes like that. Fucking nuts. People got to stop believing that weirdos are in the fucking CIA. No, it's not happening. If somebody's in the CIA, they're probably not telling you. Well, I guess that's not true. It's sort of true, probably, though. (laughs) That was the least concrete statement I've ever made. It's sort of true, probably, though. Merch. Anyhow, this case is a little bit tough because there isn't a ton of focus on anything other than the investigation. We need to address the fact that four really great people lost their lives. Four really great people who are focused on friends and family and doing a job that they loved, and they all worked so fucking hard to get where they were. So hard. They had kids. They had families. They had worked so hard for this company, for this boat, and it was a team effort. Like This was the dream. The American dream, if there ever was one, was Loving fishing growing up and being like, I'm going to do this for a living one day. Fishing charter boats, they're so expensive. And thanks to grandpa, he helped them get this boat only for it to be how they died, which is insane. Nobody could have seen that coming. Achieving his dream is how his wife, family, and friends died. That's, That's insane. That should never be a true statement. It's clearly i hope everyone gets it it's not their fault they worked so hard were just good people and got taken advantage of by two people who wanted nothing more than what they had what they had worked for their entire life these two fuck nuts wanted it for free but it wasn't it wasn't it was at the expense of all of their lives those two babies are orphaned they don't have a mom they don't have a dad they used to have parents and now they don't. And there's no, there's never any closure, but there's particularly no closure in this case because their bodies have never been found. And what are the chances they ever will be found? This is the high seas, high, high seas. This is, this is not near the shore, maybe, maybe one day, but it's so unlikely. And I hate that so much for them. So fucking, so stupid. People fucking suck sometimes. But shout out to the federal government for being like, fuck you all and the broom you came in on. I have said broom so many times. I got to figure out a new word. The fucking cave you crawled out of. Fucking demons. No. Assholes. Fuck. No insults enough. I wish we lived in a world where I would run out of cases to cover. That's my dream. 
I want the podcast to not be able to fucking survive because there's no more cases. Nobody is getting murdered anymore because it's fucked up. It's always so fucked up. The pain that is caused by not one, but four murders is astronomical. The ripple effect is a forever kind. Ugh. Fucking rage. Huh. I love you guys. You're the best. <laughs>